listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. Excellent. Well, let me mention too, we're going to be sharing communion as we are every week through the Beatitude series. So if you don't yet have communion elements, if you'll just raise your hand, somebody, whether you're in the balcony or whether you're on the floor, somebody will be with you. There's a couple here in the center. Just keep your hands up and uh, Cassandra's going to help you on the floor and Vicky's going to help you in the balcony. Do we have any of the, everybody in the balconies prepared? Okay, great. Wow. You guys are on top of it. Uh, Not to say that you guys aren't, but... um, All right, well, today begins our our big series that I've been promoting week in and week out since I've started. We are going to journey through the entire Sermon on the Mount together as a church, verse by verse, passage by passage, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And uh, we're going to begin over these next eight weeks with the opening section of the Sermon on the Mount, which is the Beatitudes. And uh, incidentally, I don't think I've even mentioned this since I've been here, but I actually, this Saturday, I have a new book coming out. It's my second book. It's called Jesus People. I have a copy right here. This is kind of a proof copy. Jesus People, the subtitle is Communities Formed by the Beatitudes. This was a three-year project for me, researching, reading, writing, editing, um, and I am so proud of, of the message that, uh, that I've written about. I'm just excited about this book and I uh, feel like it's going to help a lot of people. So this, this will be available on Amazon um, in every other format, ebook, hardcover, paperback. It's available on Amazon uh, as of this coming Saturday, it releases. But I hope perhaps in a couple Sundays to have a bunch of copies that I will make available to you at cost, at my cost. Uh, so we'll just say $5, and that'll, that'll hopefully cover the shipping and all of that. But, but $5, that'll make it nice and simple. Um, so if you, if you want to wait in a couple weeks, I'll have some cheaper copies for you as well if you're interested in getting the book. But this series, at least this opening part of the series, is going to be a companion series to the book. But we're not going to stop with the Beatitudes. We're going to go all the way through the entire Sermon on the Mount. And today is going to be an introductory sermon to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Let's read the context and the setting of the sermon, and then we're going to pray and get started. Matthew 5, verses 1 and 2. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain... And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them. Heavenly Father, we have gathered today in this place to be taught by you. Over these next few moments, we consecrate this time to hear from the Holy Spirit. We set aside as an act of worship everything else that might be going on in our minds. And we, as best we know how, incline our ears to your voice. Speak to the very core of our beings, even through the frailty of a flawed preacher. 
Holy Spirit, may your voice be heard. And may your word take deep root in our hearts and bear fruit for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Somewhere around the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, crowds begin to collect around some of these little towns like Capernaum and Bethsaida and Chorazin. This was the area that they had heard that this mysterious young prophet, this new upstart teacher named Jesus of Nazareth, he was known to itinerate around these little towns and he lived in this little village called Capernaum. And all of these people from all these different directions, they have heard the reports that were swirling around this man regarding his miracles and his healings and his astounding acts, things that he was doing that nobody else had heard of. And they wanted to see it for themselves. They wanted to capture a glimpse and and even be a part of it. And so they travel, many of them from miles around, every direction, and they begin to assemble around this little area around the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And when Jesus sees this little area just swarming with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people, he ascends up one of the nearby mountains. And with the gathered masses below at the base of the mountain, and with his newly chosen disciples forming an inner ring around him, Jesus sits down and he begins to teach what you and I know to be the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. Now I want us to pause and consider the sequence here that Matthew has laid out for us. Two chapters earlier, Matthew 3, Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River by his cousin John. Immediately after that, next chapter, chapter 4, Jesus leaves the Jordan And it says the Spirit drives him out into the desert, into the wilderness, where Jesus will spend the next 40 days being tempted by Satan. And then after this 40-day period of temptation, the very next thing that happens is he launches his ministry, and in the next chapter, chapter 5, he ascends this mountain, and he begins to teach the Sermon on the Mount with his disciples in front of him and the gathered masses below. What Matthew is doing is that he's showing us that Jesus is recreating the Exodus story. Hundreds and hundreds of years earlier, the very beginning of our Bibles, book of Exodus, we learn that the children of Israel were in bondage in Egypt. And God miraculously delivers them out of slavery by parting the Red Sea And they cross the Red Sea on dry ground. Or you could say it this way. They pass through the waters. And then they spend the next how many years? 40 years wandering in the desert, in the wilderness, enduring all kinds of temptations and trials and tests. And as many of us know, so often Israel fails the test. But then somewhere along the way, Moses, their leader, the prophet, ascends up another mountain, the Mount a mountain called Sinai, the Mount, uh, Mount Sinai. He ascends up and, and he receives the law, the Torah from Yahweh. And then he brings it back down and he gives it to the 12 tribes of Israel gathered at the base of the mountain. So you see, Jesus, it's very important you know this, he's recreating this sequence. Just like Israel 
passed through the waters of the Red Sea, spent 40 years of temptation and testing in, in the wilderness and failed, and then they gather at the base of a mountain and receive the law from Yahweh through Moses, Jesus himself passes through the waters of baptism, spends 40 days of temptation in the wilderness, and unlike Israel, conquers and is victorious over the testing, and then he himself ascends up a mountain, and with the gathered masses below, and his 12 gathered in front of him, Jesus gives this sermon. There's a lot of things we need to think about and reflect on here, but for today, what I want you to see is just simply this. This is not just an ordinary run-of-the-mill sermon. As Scott McKnight, New Testament scholar, says, what we have in the Sermon on the Mount is we have the new Moses giving the new law for the new people of God. The Sermon on the Mount is the most complete, most important sermon Jesus ever gave. It is his manifesto for human life and society under his reign. And for those of us tuning in today who describe ourselves as followers of Jesus, we are obligated to pay close attention to this most important sermon. We must be careful not to soften it or domesticate it or tame it in any way. Because if there's anything at all that we're interested in as Village Church, I think first and foremost, we've got to be interested in getting Jesus right. I don't think anybody here consciously wants to craft our own version of Jesus according to our own imagination, our own preferences, and our own current way of looking at the world. That's when Christianity goes haywire and off the rails. We got to first and foremost, before anything else, understand Jesus as he is. But listen to me, it's impossible to understand Jesus as he is apart from the Sermon on the Mount. It would be like, imagine somebody claiming to be an expert on Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., but they never actually study his I Have a Dream speech. Or imagine someone who claims to be an authority on the life of Abraham Lincoln, but they never actually get around to studying his Gettysburg Address. This is what we as Christians are like when we marginalize or we neglect the Sermon on the Mount. It is his true intention for human life and society. It is, this is Jesus' Gettysburg Address. This is his I Have a Dream speech. He's giving us his dream, his vision for a world remade under his reign around allegiance to him. He's giving us his dream for a whole new culture of Jesus' people. I would go so far as to say that these three chapters, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, this is the pinnacle, the peak of the biblical tradition, both Jewish and Christian. In fact, across all religious faiths, whether someone is a Christian or a Jew or a Buddhist or a Muslim or a Hindu or an agnostic or whatever, they're, they're just, across the board, there's this deep respect for these words of Jesus, for how they've transformed history. When Lord Irwin, the British Viceroy in India, came to Mahatma Gandhi, and he asked Gandhi, he said, how in the world are we ever going to solve the problems between our two countries, Great Britain and India. How will we ever solve the problems that exist between us? And Gandhi 
took his Bible and opened to Matthew chapter 5. And he said, when your nation and my nation shall come together underneath the teaching of Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount, he said, we will have not only solved our problems, but the problems of the entire world. That's not bad for a Hindu. In fact, when Gandhi died, they had his funeral there in India, and one of the great Hindu leaders in India gave a eulogy for Gandhi. And, and here's what he said. He said, Gandhi was probably the most Christ-like man of the entire 20th century. Now just, whether you agree with it or not, just take notice of something. This is a Hindu man eulogizing another Hindu man at a Hindu funeral in a Hindu nation. And what's the measuring stick for Gandhi? Christ. Because he heard these words and he did what they say. The Sermon on the Mount, I like to call it the Constitution of the Kingdom of God. As I said a moment ago, it is his manifesto for God's alternative society. For those of us who are Christians, the Sermon on the Mount is the ethical backbone for our new life in Christ. It is the specific, practical, commanded Jesus way to live, and it is Jesus' way to life. To be a disciple of Jesus is to follow him on this path. At home, at work, at school, at leisure. To actually walk with Jesus on this way. Tomorrow morning, after your second cup of coffee. When Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, what does he mean? What does that look like? The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' response. In fact, Jesus is not only speaking as the head of the church. When he gives his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is speaking as the creator of the world. He's not just teaching us how to be good Christians. He's actually teaching us how to become human the way God intends humans to look. Next week, we'll begin our journey through the Beatitudes, these eight prophetic statements we find at the very beginning. One by one, for eight weeks, we're going to take one at a time. I see the Beatitudes as a foundation and as a summary of the entire sermon. And if the Sermon on the Mount can be seen as the constitution of God's kingdom, then the Beatitudes compose the preamble. I think one of the things you're going to see when we get into the Beatitudes is that the Beatitudes are not like these nice little sweet charming statements that we should all go home and needlepoint into our pillows. Actually, the Beatitudes are deeply shocking and disturbing and counterintuitive if we understand them correctly. But for those of us who want to follow Jesus, the Beatitudes are the stones that pave the Jesus way. Each of them perfectly depicts the nature of God's agenda for kingdom people and how that agenda must be carried out. N.T. Wright, one of my favorite scholars, says it like this. When God wants to change the world, he doesn't send in the tanks. He sends in the meek, the mourners, those who are hungry and thirsty for God's justice, the peacemakers, etc. 
So I'm excited because this, even actually this Wednesday, we begin discussing the sermon and the Beatitudes in particular. And I'm just excited. I've been, I've been looking forward to it. I've been praying about this for the last two months because I'm not just going to get to preach to you on the Beatitudes, but so many of you are going to have this, this opportunity to gather together in your studies and your small groups on Wednesday nights, even this Wednesday, starting this Wednesday, we're going to start. And if you're not in a Wednesday night group, we're going to have several of them. Uh, John Sponsler is going to be leading a men's group, a men's study on the Beatitudes. And that'll start up this Wednesday at 6.30. Uh, Gary Carell is going to be uh, starting his, with his group in the Beatitudes. You're welcome to join those. Pastor Wade is going to be starting a, a Beatitudes-themed group that's going to involve content and discussion, and it'll be in the chapel. Anybody and everybody can be a part of that. And then our, our Sunday morning Bible studies, many of them are going to be doing this as well. And so what we get to do is dream together and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us because let me tell you something. The Holy Spirit doesn't just speak to me. Every one of us can hear what the Holy Spirit is saying. And so I'm, I'm excited about what the Holy Spirit's going to birth in our church. As we imagine together, what would it look like for our church to do ministry and minister to one another through the lens of the Beatitudes? It's going to be exciting. Let's look at the Beatitudes together. I just want to scroll through these eight statements, and why don't you even say this with me? Say it with some conviction. Let's begin. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here's my assignment for all of you. That doesn't mean I'm done preaching, by the way. Um, my assignment is this. It would thrill me to death to know that every one of us in here, within the next few weeks, will have these entire eight statements committed to memory. I want to challenge you personally to, to if, you, if you don't already have them memorized, commit these beatitudes to memory. If you have the pledges, Pledge of Allegiance memorized, you ought to have the Beatitudes memorized. Because as we sang earlier, we're citizens of heaven. And that's an eternal citizenship. Memorize the Beatitudes. Take one a day. If that's too much, take one a week. And then pray the Beatitudes on a daily basis throughout this series. I want to challenge you to do that. Incorporate the Beatitudes into your prayers. If you don't yet already pray, begin with the Beatitudes. Memorize them. In the meantime, read them until you have them memorized. But pray them. Not in a rote, repetitious way. But pray them with reflection. With deep thought. Let these words begin to sink and absorb into your heart. Into the very soil of your heart. Let these words begin to dislodge some of the boulders and stones, the hidden assumptions in our lives that block the kingdom from taking deep root. 
And I think over time, what you're going to discover is that with the Spirit's empowerment, your life's going to begin to blossom with the right fruit of God's Spirit. Ron Dart, who is a, a Greek scholar, he has his own spin, his own translation of the Beatitudes. I want to show you. It just kind of states them in a fresh way. I've, I, I enjoy just reading different takes on the Beatitudes from qualified people. And here's what Greek scholar Ron Dart, here's how he translates these. He begins the divine life. Now pause there. Most of the time when we read translations of the Beatitudes, it starts this way. Blessed are those. Most of them have that. In fact, that's how I've memorized the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who such and such. Or sometimes you'll, you'll read happier those. The Greek word underneath the word blessed there is actually the word makarios. It's not a common word in our New Testament, but, but it was very common in classical Greek usage. And I've read a lot about this word. It's been fascinating to me to learn about it. Here's what I can tell you about the word makarios. It's way stronger than blessed. We just don't have an English word that adequately captures what makarios means, all of the nuance there. But here's how the ancient Greeks understood makarios. Here's what it meant. It meant the life of the gods. So Jesus takes this Greek concept and he converts it, basically stating, here's how it will look when someone has God living on the inside of them. The divine life. Or as Peter says, this is what it is to participate in the divine nature. So here's how he translates the Beatitudes. The divine life is for those who die to the demands of the ego. Such people will inhabit the kingdom of God. The divine life is for those who've lived through tragedy and suffering. Such people will be comforted at a deep level. The divine life is for those who bring their passions under control for goodness. It is such people who will inherit the earth. The divine life is for those who hunger and thirst for justice. Such people will be fed to the full. The divine life is offered to those who are gracious and merciful. Such people will be treated in a merciful and gracious manner. The divine life is offered to those whose home is clean on the inside. Such people will know the very presence of God and see his face. The divine life is offered to those who are makers and creators of peace. Such people will be called the children of God. And finally, the divine life is known by those who are persecuted for seeking justice. Such people will know what it means to live in the kingdom of heaven. When you look at the Beatitudes, you are looking at Jesus. This is the message that he lived. These are the words that became flesh in his life. The whole life and teachings of Jesus are encapsulated within the Sermon on the Mount. And the entire Sermon on the Mount is encapsulated within the eight Beatitudes. And I would even say this, all of the eight Beatitudes are encapsulated within the very first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Or as Jesus would later say, not my will, but yours be done. This is what it is to be poor in spirit. So the Beatitudes 
they not only tell us about Jesus, the Beatitudes also tell us a little something about the Holy Spirit and his power and his work in our lives. You can think of it this way. The Beatitudes are Jesus' version of the fruit of the Spirit. Or you could say this. The Beatitudes are the signs of one who has been baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit. Somebody says, is that guy a spirit-filled believer? I don't know. Let's go ask him if he speaks in tongues. Jesus would ask, are you poor in spirit? Do you mourn with the mourners? Are you meek when people get in your face? Are you merciful to those who ask for it and need it? Do you hunger and thirst and crave and yearn and ache for God to come and make things right? And then afterwards, instead of getting bitter, do you, you purify your heart so that you can begin to see God at work all around you? Jesus is saying, these are the signs, these are the evidences of one who's been filled and continually filled with God's Spirit. Why? Because this is what the Spirit produces in our lives. These divine virtues that are represented in the Beatitudes, understand, you and I cannot consistently generate this on our own within our own selves. But these Beatitudes and the virtues they represent, this is a very real description of what the Spirit produces in the lives of those who are being transfigured by the gaze of Christ upon our hearts. When we think about the Beatitudes, when we look at the Beatitudes, we're looking at a life that drinks deeply from the well of the Spirit. This is what it looks like to walk in the Spirit. Self-emptying, meekness, radical mercy, co-suffering, all-forgiving love. In fact, this whole sermon is like a finger that points us to what human nature can be and should be and one day will be in the bloom of its full and finest flowering and ripest fruit. When Christ brings you to completion, you're going to look like the Beatitudes. You're going to look like the Sermon on the Mount. Somebody say amen. amen. Okay, thank you. I'm going to have to start amening myself here. <laughs> Listen to what I'm going to say to you. It's going to sound weird at, at first, but I'll explain it. The Sermon on the Mount is part of Jesus' saving work in our lives. All of the early church fathers understood this, that salvation is not just something that happens for the afterlife or at the afterlife. Even now, the Apostle Paul says we're being saved. We're being conformed and transformed in the image of God's Son. And this is, this is part of salvation. Salvation is not just a future thing. It's past, present, and future. We were saved. We're going to be saved. But we're also in the midst of being saved. And all of Jesus' life, as Paul says, is part of that saving work. Paul says it explicitly. We're not just saved by his death and his resurrection. We're saved by his life, by his teachings. So the Sermon on the Mount, these words of Jesus, save me. You say, how? They save me from believing that I'm the center of the universe. The Sermon on the Mount ushers me through the narrow way, through the narrow door that leads me into the kingdom of Christ where Christ is Lord and not me, not my will, not my rights, not my freedom. I'm so grateful for the freedom I have in every respect. 
But as Americans, sometimes we assume that freedom is the highest moral imperative. Jesus says, loving God, loving people, loving the stranger, loving your enemy, that's the highest moral imperative. And you see, that's an assault on my ego. Because my ego does not like that. There's a part of Ryan Post, I want to be God. I want to be independent. I want to be in control. I want to be self-sufficient. And this sermon, if I'll let this sermon begin to work on my insides, what the Sermon on the Mount does, it, is, it exposes that in me, then it strips it off of me, it starves it out of me, then it reclothes me and refeeds me. These words of Jesus kill me, and then they raise me to life. They empty me, they bankrupt my ego, and then they fill me with the grace and life of God's Spirit. So the Sermon on the Mount takes the death and resurrection of Christ and it transposes it into my everyday life of discipleship. I'm dying and rising with Christ while walking with Jesus on this way. And make no mistake, we're actually called to believe and obey this sermon. When Jesus tells us, turn the other cheek, when he tells us, give away your tunic and your coat, when he says, love your enemies, and all of these types of things, he actually does expect us to live this way. We can't do it on our own. No, 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 no. In fact, we need one another, but, and we also need the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's got to produce this kind of life in us, and we got we to cooperate with the Spirit's work, right? But with the Spirit's help and with the help of one another, we are called to obey this sermon. Now, I say that, it sounds obvious, but I'm going to tell you that has not been obvious to a lot of Christians and theologians, especially in the last few hundred years. What's happened, the, the crazy scandal of the Sermon on the Mount is that the church in the last few hundred years has actually employed theologians and commentators to rescue us from the Sermon on the Mount. And they have found all sorts of clever ways to take this precious sermon, this call to radical discipleship, this invitation to join Jesus on the Jesus way of life. They found clever ways to take this sermon and disarm it and silence its voice. I'm going to show you how they've done it. It's going to sound anointed, so be careful. Don't amen me. <laughs> but follow the logic. Here's the logic that they give. Number one. Jesus is giving us a version of the law even more strict and extreme than the religion of the scribes and the Pharisees. Two, Jesus knows you cannot keep it, that it's not practical and it's not possible. Three, these excessive demands will drive you to despair and you will say, there's no way I can do this. Four, you will be forced to cast yourself on the mercy and grace of God. Instead of trying to obey Jesus, you simply have to put your faith in him. Five, that faith that Jesus has done it all so you don't have to is the only thing that saves you. In other words, six, believing in Jesus as your Lord and Savior means that you're not able to and not supposed to obey him. They would say, hey, we're saved by, by grace, not by works, so don't try to follow Jesus by obeying this sermon. I'm telling you, that is the majority view of commentators of this sermon over the last 150 years. Martin Luther, to go back to the great reformer himself, I cannot believe he actually said this, but he did. Here's what Martin Luther said in regards to the Sermon on the Mount. 
He said, we are still sinners, even in the best life. So let the Christian live like the rest of the world. Let him model himself on the world's standards in every sphere of life and not presumptuously aspire to live a different life under grace from his old life under sin. He said that was the heresy of the enthusiasts, the Anabaptists, and their kind. He goes on, let the Christian not attempt to erect a new religion of the letter by endeavoring to live a life of obedience to the commands of Jesus. So in other words, here's what he's saying. To be truly saved, you must not obey, you must only believe, whatever that's supposed to mean. Now, why would Martin Luther, a great, a great theologian in so many respects, why would somebody like Martin Luther and, and hundreds of other commentators and theologians basically unanimously tell us that when Jesus says, love your enemies and forgive your transgressors and bless your persecutors and, 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 and don't worry about your life and so on and so forth, why would they tell us that actually you're not even supposed to try to obey any of that stuff? Why would they tell us that? Here's a hint. Because they didn't want to do that stuff. Can I be transparent with you? I don't want to do that. My ego does not want to obey the words of Jesus. This sermon threatens my ego. It'll kill my ego. And my ego wants to survive. When we, quote, get rescued from the Sermon on the Mount, from the call and demand of the sermon, we're left with the same bankrupt system that we inherited from Adam and we remain unchanged people who have abandoned Christ's vision for the world. Why don't we let Jesus answer the question, are we supposed to obey this sermon? If we want to know whether or not we should actually take his words seriously and put them into practice, let's, let's have Jesus have the final say. Does that sound like a good idea? Yeah. Here's where I'm going to close. Let's look at these four verses at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 7. Watch this. Very provocative. Verse 21. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who what? Does the will. Does the will. Does the will of my Father in heaven. Verses 24 through 27. Therefore, watch this. We're going to pause on verse 24 here. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. What's the rock? These words. The rock is the sermon. It's the way of life, the Jesus way. Whoever hears these words and puts them into practice, you're building your house on the rock. 25. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. I know all about that, South Louisiana. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. So here's the thing. A disciple is not just someone who believes that Jesus is the truth. A disciple is someone who actually believes Jesus. 
and that takes a sermon like that seriously and says, this is the cross way. This is the narrow way. This is the Jesus way. And it's the only way to life as God designs life to be lived. So may we be a people who don't just believe in Jesus as a person, but may we be a people who actually believe his words, believe his ideas. We're going to believe in his vision. We're going to believe in Jesus' prescription for a world gone wrong. And my call to you, my plea with you as we begin the sermon, because we're going to get into some heavy stuff, and I'm going to do my best to say as little as possible when we get into that stuff. I'm not going to tell you how to think and what to do and how to change. I'm, I'm not, that's not my job. My job is to lead you into an encounter with Jesus and his spirit and this word and then lead you to a prayerful reflection. Jesus, what are you teaching me? What are you trying to tell me? What are you calling me to let go of? What perceptions, what presuppositions, what thought patterns, what ways of looking at things do I need to let go of? What do I need to unlearn so that I can learn things the Jesus way? I pray whether, whether you're brand new to Christianity or whether you've been here forever, that each one of us would freshly humble ourselves before Jesus, the greatest teacher of all time, who lived life the way it was meant to be lived, that we would humble ourselves and let Jesus teach us how to live, even if we think we know already. Let him begin to sort some things out in our lives and in our, our thoughts. Because I believe when, when we get serious about that, what happens as we let the Holy Spirit begin to birth these new things and rearrange some things and take things out and add new stuff and and begin to shift some things around, when we allow the Holy Spirit to do that work as a church, let me tell you, man, that is the kind of Christianity that can change the world, that can rescue and save this dark world as it is. Because our lives are going to carry within it a message that changes the world. That's the kind of Christianity I'm, I'm obsessed with. I'm mesmerized by. It's the only kind of Christianity I'm interested in because I believe it's the only Christianity that actually has the capacity to save the world. And that's what Jesus is interested in. Stand with me this morning. We're going to share communion together. Pastor Wade did such a skillful job teaching us about communion, the Lord's Supper last week. These two elements, the bread and the cup, they represent his broken body and his shed blood. And it's impossible to explain what happened on the cross, I think, period. There's, it's just such a, a mystery. There, there's different aspects that we can certainly highlight. It provides re, uh, forgiveness for our sins. It reconciles us to the Father. It, it also is a statement of justice upon the sin and the evil that keeps the world bound. It's, it's all sorts of things, but what the cross also is, 
is it is an example of the kind of life you and I are called to embrace. We see the Beatitudes perfectly embodied on the cross. On the cross, we are seeing someone who perfectly demonstrates poverty of spirit, not my will, not my will, but yours be done. We are seeing the perfect embodiment of meekness. Meekness is strength under control. Jesus said, I could call down 12 legions of angels right now and wipe all of you out. And instead, he meekly surrenders his life and allows himself to be crucified. On the cross, we see radical mercy even for the very men who are crucifying him. He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We're seeing the quintessential peacemaker of all time. On the cross, Jesus makes peace between God and humanity, and he's also establishing the basis by which we have peace with one another under allegiance to his work and his person on Calvary. And of course, we're seeing the worst persecution imaginable. And the cross is not Jesus saying, I'm doing this so that you don't have to. He says, take up your cross, follow me on this way. And what we're doing this morning in communion is we're remembering this, and with this vision of Christianity in mind, together we're committing ourselves to this way of life. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your faithfulness, we're grateful for your sacrifice, for the redemption and the salvation that comes as a result. And we're also grateful, God, that you laid forth a clear vision of the life we're called to live by the power of God's Spirit. I pray that the men and women in this room together, myself included, that we would be willing to stay on the journey. It's going to be a long journey. It's a lifelong journey. And I'm so grateful that you're patient with me because I get it wrong and I make left turns all the time. But Lord, I pray in this act of communion that this would be a symbol of our commitment together to follow you on the path of radical humility, a willingness to be broken over the brokenness of the world, a willingness to embrace the way of meekness and servanthood and coming under rather than trying to dominate and establish power over, that we would be men and women who hunger and thirst for things to be made right, that we would follow you on the path of radical mercy and forgiveness. May we be men and women who are being made pure in heart, pure of pride and self-righteousness and judgmentalism that prevents us from seeing you at work in the world. May we be following you in the, on the path of making and creating peace, entering into the conflict to make things right under your agenda and your vision. And may we be men and women who are willing to be persecuted, mocked, belittled, misrepresented, mischaracterized, and without Without striking back, we're willing to absorb the criticism and the pain and the hurt with deep joy, knowing that we are identifying with your son's example on Calvary. For it is to these that the kingdom of heaven is given. Lord, may we be filled with your kingdom life.
through your son's work on the cross in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.